From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga, and my guest today is Diana Beach Batarse. Where to even start with my friend Diana? You want to talk about pivots? Let's go. She's been in education. Uh, she was the founding director of a classical school for the Hispanic community in Franklin, south of Nashville here. She was a mother of two and then five children after the sudden loss of her first husband and the blending of families with her current husband. She's a gifted songwriter who's made an incredible children's catechism project, as well as maybe one of the most powerful worship leaders I've ever experienced. Her dad ran for president in the nation of Colombia. Diana has just so many uh, amazing, incredible stories. And I'm not going to lie to you, I love this episode. Uh, I've known Diana forever, but we hadn't seen each other in a couple years. And then a few weeks ago, out of the blue, her name just popped in my head, and I, I thought, I need to interview Diana. She would be amazing. And honestly, I assume that's from the Lord and that somebody out there needs to hear what she has to say. I think I can honestly say that this was one of the more personally impactful conversations that I've had on this podcast. You are just going to love it. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to introduce you to Ginselli, a dentist from the Dominican Republic. Life growing up in my country was the story of daily struggles. You start just looking at yourself like you don't have any value. You think, I cannot change what I am. My fear was to end my life as the teenagers that I saw. I always wanted to be a dentist. If we didn't have just a little bit of rice in our house, how okay, can I think and study? Without a little rice in the house, how can I think and study? My story changed when compassion with my sponsor and also the team of my church came to my life. Through the project, I was able to go to my school with my stomach full of food. If I get sick, I have someone to take care of me. We used to sing, and every day we have someone who teaches a Bible story. My sponsor used to write it to me. I can do everything in Jesus Christ. So in the deep part of my heart, I knew that God was able to do something with my dreams. If I were able to have my sponsor in front of me, I can just tell her, thank you so much for changing my life. Because what I am right now is because God used her so much. Sponsorship costs $38 a month. That's like two weeks of sodas at lunch that I should not even be drinking. So a couple things about Compassion. Compassion International are 100% Christ-centered. Their projects are facilitated through and only through the local church. They have over 7,500 of these church projects worldwide, and each one is operated by local staff that share the language and the culture of the children there. Something else you need to know? Sponsorships are one-to-one, -one, 
meaning your sponsorship dollars go directly for the care of the specific child that you sponsor. They take a holistic approach to child development. They believe in meeting the physical, mental, emotional, educational, medical, and spiritual needs of each child. We just heard from Ginselli. The words her sponsor wrote to her were life-changing. You, pivot listener, you can do this for a child. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot for more information. And please do use that link. Compassion is partnering with us to help bring you The Pivot. And when you visit through that link, it helps the podcast and, far, far more importantly, it helps to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child today. And now, my conversation with Diana Beach Batarse. But your your father was in politics in Colombia, right? Well, eventually he would be. But my mom and dad met in um, Cartagena, Colombia, in medical schools. And for my mom, it was insanely crazy. She was one of three women. And for my dad, it was crazy to be there as well because um, they were poor. And um, he served time in the military. He was a genius. Hmm. Um, and for his service, he was able to get his education paid for. So... Um, yeah, so they met uh, and came to the States. They s- landed in Chicago, did their residencies there. So I was raised in Chicago. But eventually my dad would go back and actually um, run for the presidency of the country, which is insane. We always knew he would do that. And you, he always, did. you always knew? He, oh, we grew up knowing he would try. Really? Yes. He, he, that was his lifelong aspiration. Huh. And while he didn't ever become president... And there were some strange circumstances that prevented him from having a full-blown campaign, health reasons. Um, He did do some interesting things. Like he and two other men, um, they um, spoke with members of Congress in the United States, and they lobbied them to consider dual citizenship for every Colombian in the United States, and and they did the same work in Colombia. And now every Colombian citizen worldwide has the ability to be a dual citizen, which is incredible. Wow. Yeah, so that was part of my dad's work. That's amazing. really was. He was best known as a brain surgeon. He, it was really funny because my mom gave him a recording session for <laughs> a birthday. And that line that producers say, hey, this isn't brain surgery, was really kind of funny <laughs> because <laughs> it, I, my dad had an easier time doing brain surgery than he did keeping the meter of a four four time piece, even though he could sing. But he's the wedding singer. He just yeah. loved to hold on a note that felt good. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was my dad. <gasps> oh my goodness. So did you ever live in Colombia then? I never lived there. I okay. spent a lot of time there. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Continue to. Yeah. yeah. But so you grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago in the city and then we ended up in the suburbs and I went to school um to college at uh, Northwestern University in yeah. Evanston. Yeah. Okay. And I was pre-med, no wonder since both my parents were my my dad being a brain surgeon and my mother being a lung specialist. So I used to sign my name with MD for medical daughter. So I was doomed <laughs> from the start. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. So did you have aspirations then of, of getting, I mean, I guess you did. You had aspirations of getting into medicine. I did. I really did accept, and, and I so admired my parents. I was a good student and it seemed like the right path. But I had passions that were sort of relegated to, just hobbies, you know, mm. and, and 
they weren't quiet for me, though, singing and playing guitar and songwriting. And I also loved working with kids, and I was good at it. And um, so eventually I just couldn't ignore those things. And I graduated from college. Uh, I was pre-med, and I had a degree that was liberal arts, history and literature of religions, which, you know, there's not a huge market for that kind of major. Uh, but um, I started working with kids and uh, started singing at little cafes in Boston. And both of those interests ended up, you know, deepening and opportunities began opening. Yeah. So at what point did you get to Nashville? So I met my late husband, Jonathan, in Boston at church. And um, it was at that time where I was trying to figure out what am I doing? And um, we decided that we would go to Martha's Vineyard when, you know, after we married, um, which is an insane thing like to, to live. do. Like to, to like to live. We literally lived on that island for three years, and we were recycling before anybody knew what recycling <laughs> really was. So we were way ahead of the – because, I mean, you know, you live on an island, and you have to really think about those things. So mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. Um, but the crazy thing was I was working with – um, the 4-H program. I don't know if you are, remember that or are familiar with the uh, yeah. uh, federal and state youth program, youth education program, and um, an enrichment more than anything. And Jonathan was at the radio station, got free tickets to go to Carly Simon's private HBO filming. W- filming. It was literally film at that time. And he whisked me away from the office. He said, we've got to go. And they would load the cameras after every two songs, and the producer would say, "Hey, anybody want to come up? Tell a story, juggle, tell a joke." Just killing time. Yeah, killing time between you know reloading film, and people around me were like, "Diana, get up there, get up there." I I was reluctant, but I finally did, and I was thinking about James Taylor songs. I'm like, "No, that wouldn't work." (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, anyway, to make a fun and long story short, I ended up getting up there and the whole band backed me up on Stevie Wonders, Isn't She Lovely? On the stage on Lobsterville Beach. Oh it was my so goodness. phenomenal. And I mean, I literally left the stage and was just ignited. I was like, I, I don't know what I have to do in my life, but this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So anyway, that's what got us thinking about coming to Nashville. And... Within a year, we were here, and within a year, I did master's. I had some interest. Um, you know, my path would divert from what I thought would happen, mm. but um, I've ha- I've kept my hand in music. It didn't look like the traditional path. So, okay, so what did, you th- what did you think it might look like? I thought I would get, you know, that five-year deal, and, and actually one – company, formidable company, was looking at me that way with a five-year Spanish record deal hmm. simultaneously, So, which is just phenomenal. And that I would be in large venues singing in front of thousands of people. And so, yeah, that feels like a chapter long ago. Hmm. I still enjoy it. It's funny. I'll never forget in this very place at the art house in the celebration of the 25th year, I was here hmm. and I was listening to Matthew Perriman Jones who told this great story. He said he once asked Charlie, how do I do music 24-7? And Charlie answered, which at the time must have sounded snarky, but he just said, do music every day. And that's really profound. Because what Matthew was really asking is, how do I make a living? Mm -hmm. How can I make this my vocation? And you know what? 
I'm on the other side of, a, you know, I'm not starting anything right now. And that is such wisdom. It's like you love something, just do it. Do it all the time. Do it to enrich you and your sphere and the world. And um, and so I think it's fun. I, I just talked to somebody about going into the studio to record. It's not for a project. It's not for an artist. It's like just for the love of it. And that's so freeing. Yeah. You know? So that's kind of where I am right now. When you guys were living on Martha's Vineyard, did you have kids yet? When did like when did yeah. that part of your life change? Well, we were really trying to launch our interests and so we postponed having kids, which we had time. I mean, we married fairly young. I was only twenty three. But we ended up waiting a lot longer than I thought we would. Um, so we didn't start for like nine or 10 years, but it keeps me young today because my kids are younger than, you know, most of their peers' moms, right, are, are a little bit younger than me. But Jonathan was um, an academic and he mm. went back to school and he was working on a third master's. Holy cow. <laughs> right. He was a pretty smart guy. So like what year did you guys move here? We moved here in 1989, so a long okay. time ago. Yeah. Yeah long time ago yeah and what did what did life look like for you guys were, were you employed was it just doing the music thing full-time well I worked in a field that would inform so much of what I would do next I okay, didn't really that? know that but I was working for a mental health organization called Dee Dee Wallace which is now under sort of a conglomerate called Centerstone most people today would recognize that name and I was working as a paraprofessional alongside therapists who had uh, like adolescent kids and even preschool kids who were having trouble staying in school hmm. and so they had um, therapeutic goals and I would have these after school groups and I would design activities so that they would actually work on some of those goals. And it was intense. It was very intense. I mean, for some of these kids, they were ready to be, you know, sent to alternative schools and it was rough, rough stories. And I mean, I couldn't believe how, as hard as it was, how much I loved it. And mm. I poured myself into it. I learned so much about dealing with behavior issues and what's behind behavior issues and the heart and formed a lot of philosophy, which I'd later marry with the gospel, with a context of a Christian school. So I, I felt like I had sort of a unique way of dealing with discipline informed by those years working with kids that, um, you know, called me every name in the book and were even, I mean, I got kicked in the shins. I mean, we're talking about rough. How old were these kids? So I worked with two classes. I had preschoolers that were four who were strung out on Ritalin. I mean, honestly, it's just unbelievable. Really? Um, rough family stories. And then I also worked with middle school kids. Okay. And it would be the kind of thing where they could graduate out of the program, but we'd get close, and it was interesting to see the dynamic of they would start acting out so that they wouldn't graduate because that group ended up being a safe place. Really? And they had this connection with an adult who cared. It was just an unbelievable experience. Which makes a lot of sense. It does, you... doesn't it? Yeah. So how long did you work with, with that organization? Nine years. A long time. Okay. Yeah. Then we started a family, and I, I actually maintained a little bit of contract work, um, very, very part-time. A friend watched my baby one day a week just to keep my hand in things. I worked with kids who were about to be kicked out of the school system, and I also worked in a support group model or prevention program 
through the same organization. So I sort of had two departments that I worked with, and these were support groups for children of alcoholics, children where there's substance abuse, where there's divorce, and so it's third, fourth, and fifth graders and helping equip them for their really tough stories. And that also really informed what I would later do in founding a school. Yeah. Well, I definitely, we're going to get there. I'm curious, and this is way too big of a question, but how do you equip a third or fourth or fifth grader to handle that kind of a story? Like what, what's the, what is the goal? Well, that's an excellent question. And, you know, our, we basically made us, took a stab at equipping them. But a lot of it is framing some of their experience. So for one thing, one of the things we did was we would tell our own stories in a way that was um, easy to understand. We did it in interview format. So there would be five questions we'd answer, and and my co-leader would ask me the questions. I would tell my story so that they could see that I also suffered things when I was little. Mm. And so it kind of gave me credibility and built this relational equity. I would have some teachers who would say, oh, Joey, he's, you know, you'll have to watch out for him. And I'd never see in this group uh, from Joey what the teachers would say. I'm like, if you didn't say that to me, I would never know that he Mm. was problematic in the classroom because Joey would just, he was finally, I think, in a context where the stuff he was carrying was being valued, even if he didn't always have the floor, but he would first see it modeled. And then we basically had a simple message that said this. It was called the three C's. You didn't cause it. You can't cure it but you can learn to cope. And so our whole thing was trying to let them know, you know, what mom and dad are going through is not your fault. And it's tempting to want to fix it. And then to explain sort of the ways kids tend to try to fix problems at home and they could begin to identify the role that they would play. Hmm. And kids could see it. It was really powerful. And then to learn, you know, how to take care of themselves in that context, how to learn to express their feelings and to make a regular habit of that. Yeah, it was such – I was so proud of, proud of being a part of that program. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, yeah. that – but you you didn't cause it. You can't, you cure, can't it, cure it, but you can, can learn cope. to cope. Yeah. Which, I mean, essentially the, the – like the AA prayer, right? Pretty much. I mean, it was founded on recovery principles, and the person who designed this program was just – she was pretty young in her sobriety, and it was amazing to watch her. Every year she would get that next chip, and I was just – I remember when she – we'd worked together so long, she got her 10-year chip, and it was just so beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. It really was. With that experience then, what what leads you to starting a school? Well – Was it directly from that? No, it wasn't directly from that. Um, You know, I was raising a family, so we had EC first – um, Isi is a Spanish nickname for Isadora. She's 23 now. When she was very little, I just, I taught guitar lessons. I would, you know, do some session work. I, um, you know, just did this and that mm-hmm. to try to make ends meet and try to be as available as possible. Um, when Lena was born, who's, she's now 18, I continued doing a lot of that entrepreneurial thing. I also um, made... I had a little tiny business called Pastiche, which actually I'm thinking of resurrecting, but it means a medley of art forms. And I would do all these 
handmade wares and I had some regional reach, which was fun. So I did those kinds of artistic things to try to be an at-home mom. And then when Lena was three, there was an announcement in a bullet in the bulletin at church that they were looking for a bilingual uh, Christian who had experience in education and in classical education. And when I read it, I thought, now, please, why didn't you just say, can Diana please come to the front after the service? <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> so like, are, there, I was like, are there two of us? Are I they know. To- it was really crazy. So at first I was consulted like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. And then um, then it was like, would you please throw your hat in the ring? And I, I really wrung my hands. It was such a departure from my endeavors. Eventually decided to, and it was just absolutely the most extraordinary experience to found a school on a beautiful vision that was handed to me. You know, I didn't, I, I was, yeah, what, what? yeah. So Christ Community decided that they wanted to establish a classical school that had an intentional outreach to the Hispanic community because it was a growing population in our area. And it was also an initiative of our denomination, the PCA Church, to -hmm. reach out to the Hispanic community. So that was the intent. And for the most part, I mean, we gave it our best college try. I think we provided three out of four critical things that the Hispanic population needed. The fourth, well, I think three out of five. The fourth is full-time care for their kids. And fifth, probably transportation. But we provided, you know, bilingual teachers. We provided scholarship. We reserved spaces in the classroom because the school did fill up quickly. So we we did a lot to try to reach out to the community. But it was a, it was an extraordinary experience, and uh, I loved every minute of it. I really did. And what was your role there? I was the founding director. So I um, selected curriculum. I created curriculum. I hired staff. Um, set the schedule. And one of the things that was super fun was that I knew that all the different disciplines would be taught from the grammar stage of learning. This is classical speak now, mm-hmm. uh, classical methodology. Some of your listeners may know. Um, but basically, I thought, well, how am I going to teach Christian education, the Bible, from the grammar stage of learning? which is basically the ABCs, the one, two, threes. It's Mm. the vocabulary of that discipline. I decided, well, Holly uh, Dutton had set the Westminster Catechism to music, and uh, I decided to do the Children's Catechism, which is derivative of the Westminster, and set that to music. So I did. And... um, You know, one of the things that people criticize classical education on is there's lots of drill and it's dry and the kids had no idea they were being drilled because it was singing and movement and, Mm. you know, oh, I bet you can't sing it quiet. You know, (laughs) so it was tricky and it was just glorious. So it was a fantastic time to use my creativity and, you know, I now a mom of two kids and I've got this big school at the height when I was there, there were 195 students at 35 staff people. So it was really wow. full and rich. And um, I found myself doing a lot of my writing, uh, creating in the car, in car line. And it was a lot of this subterranean activity that I wasn't even conscious of. And I just start seeing the catechism questions had their own cadence hmm. that sort of kind of announced how the song would go. So that was... That was really awesome. I just sort of feel like I mined 
this thing that was there to be found by somebody. That's amazing. How long did you do that? The uh, school? The school, yeah. Yeah, I was there for five years. The beginning of year three, um, I lost Jonathan to a car accident. Uh, I was in the fall, November, and, um, you know, I, that's a story in and of itself, and I don't know if you want me to jump in now and tell you. Yeah. If you want to talk about it. Sure. So my girls were seven and 11. It was a Wednesday, November 7th, and Jonathan was an accomplished violinist, and on the side, he taught violin lessons. So he was um, in Leaper's Fork teaching he just completed his lesson, and he was headed to a prayer meeting, and he was coming down Old Hillsboro Road from Leaper's Fork toward Franklin. Mm. And what he didn't know is that there was a high-speed chase of a drunk driver coming toward him. So it was the drunk driver who had his nine-year-old son in the car and the pursuing officer, and you know John had no chance. He was rounding a curve, and the driver was negotiating the same curve and went out of his lane. So it was a head-on collision. And he pushed John over two lanes of traffic. And uh, the officer struck his car in the, you know, the the right lane that the officer, though the officer didn't go out of his lane, but John's car was now across. Shoved in front of him. Shoved, right, exactly. It was awful. um, John died instantly. And they worked for an hour trying to save this drunk driver and his son who every limb, all the bones were broken, bones in his face. Yeah, he's 21 now. He made it. His dad didn't. One hour of trying to keep him alive. Yeah. It was, um, I was at the office. um, And typically, I the girls on Wednesdays would go to Baby Girls Club. I picked them up, and I had a thing or two left to do at the office. And um, they sat down and played on my coworkers' computers while I finished something. And they were so content. I was like, I'm going to just keep jamming. I just kept working. And I literally cleared my desk of all these things that were coming up. Like, Mm. I got ahead about three weeks' worth of – we had several big events coming and I felt badly because it was late, and I thought, I've got to figure out dinner, and John's going to come home. But I just kept taking advantage of the time, and the girls were happy, and they had had snacks, so no one was complaining. So the moment of the accident, I was walking past the, the worship center, the sanctuary on my left, and I had this such a foreboding feeling, one that didn't quite match the moment of stress that I had because John didn't know where I was and I wasn't home. Um, you know, this is before Life 360 where you can look up mm-hmm. where people in your family are. I mean, and I couldn't reach him to tell him, I'm so sorry, babe, I didn't make dinner and, you know, I know you have something to go to. But it was this horrible feeling. And now I look back and go, that was the moment of, you know, he was translated to heaven and, you know, it was a holy moment. And it really was an extraordinary thing. And even his best friend um, had a very peculiar incident where he was getting in his car. He was just running an errand at like FedEx and he sees this car rushing toward him with headlights and he just sort of snapped too. It was really crazy. We both had, not at the same instant, but we both had this really strange otherworldly thing 
as John was passing to heaven. Wow. Yeah, I know. And so how did I what what does life look like? I know. Well, it is horrifying. That was what, eight probably eight years ago? Eleven. No, well almost twelve years ago now. Oh, it was okay. So I've been married to Peter ten years and John died almost twelve years ago. So um yeah, that incident was a tectonic plate shift. And that's not too dramatic to say, but, um, you know, you are in relationship with someone who helps you, you're, you're deciding on education things on, you know, what, what's for dinner on, did you call the dentist on, you know, are we going to be able to pay our rent, (laughs) you know, all that stuff. And it's over in an instant. And I remember the stress of how am I going to do this? Am I even prepared? And, you know, at that age, I didn't even know if we had life insurance, you know. Mm. I wasn't I had just become full-time, which was another mercy. I mm. was actually it was craziness, but I was part-time. But the school got successful and big enough so that they could sustain me now as a full-time director and so thankfully just a few months prior I um had a full-time job, but I wasn't even sure Jonathan had insurance. Well, not only did he have insurance, but 3 months before the accident for some reason, he chose to take out an accidental mortgage insurance policy that required a minimum of three $33 payments. And should he ever die in an accident, it would pay off the mortgage. And he had just made the third $33 payment. You are kidding. I'm not kidding. It was unbelievable. And so there were so many things. The week before he died, we had that talk. That talk you so want to have with your spouse, you're like, how wh- how did that happen? We'd been married 21 years. I'm like, I've been waiting for that conversation my whole life. Mm. And I was able to say things, thank him for how hard he was working for our family and his desires for me. He said, I'd love to free you up to do this children's catechism project. I mean, there's so many things that it was the last time we would pray together mm. Um it was beautiful. And then in retrospect, I'm like, Lord, you gave me that. You gave me that. I didn't know what would happen in a week. And um, I'll tell you another thing, because I know your question about what does life look like after this. Um, There was a very extraordinary, and I'll say supernatural event that happened um, the day after he died that would set me up in my grieving the day after Jonathan died, um, I had to go to the cemetery to pick his gravesite, and I was so altered. I was numb. I was. I hated this task. I can't even tell you. I remember I was with a few pastors and some friends, so I was very much supported. And as I was going to what I considered the least offensive corner of the cemetery because there was Chili's restaurant and there was Mac Hatcher <laughs> and there were some portables. I'm like, ah! And I had only been familiar with like New England cemeteries that have been there since the 1700s, right? So right yeah. Huge trees and these beautiful monuments. So here we are in what's, a, you know, a nice cemetery. But I anyway, the whole thing just was awful. And I'm walking over the rise and I literally hear John's voice. He says to me, Die, die, which was my nickname. He's, I'm okay. I love you. 
And I'm like, holy mother, what, what was that? So I'm now like my head, I, I don't even know what to say to you, except now I'm in this suspend mode and I go and I pick the gravesite. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'll be fine. I, I heard my husband's voice and I remember somebody asking me if I wanted to get mine and John's best friend said, no, don't, you're young, you might marry. Little did I know it was around the corner. I had no idea mm. the timing of what would happen in my life. I turn back around and I'm walking back and I hear his voice a second time, same words. So one of our pastors was there and I said, look, I'm not sure how the story ends. I've read the Bible, but I'm pretty sure I just heard John's voice. And he gave me that. He says it's a mystery, which was so kind. Mm. It was so kind. I didn't view his body until Saturday. Um, and I had to go in with one of the pastors because I needed to see if the girls could even see him. But because of the force of impact, the windshield popped out like a contact lens. So no glass broke his beautiful mm. face. And so he looked beautiful. And um, we said our goodbyes. I was talking to him like he was in the room. And I know the funeral director, my pastor, like, she's kind of losing it. But they didn't know that I had heard his voice. This pastor didn't know I'd heard his voice. And anyway, there's a point to the story. The girls came in. My parents came in. It was wrenching. I don't know which of these moments was harder or worse than the other. But I sit down in the parlor couch with Jonathan's sister who tells me, I've been meaning to tell you I heard John's voice. I said, you did? She goes, yeah. He said, die, die. I was like, what? She heard the same words that I heard. And it wasn't until the end of the next summer that I learned that she was at her window in Providence, Rhode Island at that hour, just doing dishes, looking out the window. And she heard his voice mm. while I was out looking for his gravesite. So... What that did for me is that it made me realize it, it, it accelerated truths that I think I would have finally, you know, eventually arrived at, but that he's very much alive. He's very much okay. He is absolutely free from encumbrance of sin. He now loves me perfectly and sees me with God's eyes hmm. and can forgive me for the ways I haven't loved him well. And I also can forgive him. I mean, it was this unbelievable reconciliation because there's never a good time to die, right? Mm. Never. I mean, there was there were things that we, you know, had to work through. And um, so I wept and cried and I'd alternately talk to him and then tell Jesus, I don't know if you only let me <laughs> have that moment and he's no longer hearing me, so please tell him. But it just was this extraordinary gift in my healing mm. and in my um, reconciling the unfinished business and in establishing the hope that is heaven and knowing that he was there. I remember when I dropped a box of cereal and it was so, I had an overreaction. I was just so mad that I had to clean up all the cereal and I was crying and grumpy. And I'm like, you dog, you're in heaven and you don't have to clean up the cereal and I'm down here. And I, you know, it's like, but everything was so framed by 
you're there and you're free and you're perfect and you see me with God's eyes and it was just such a gift. So I felt like I intended my world with this understanding of God's goodness, of his provision for him and for me. And prior to John's death, I um, had certain things settled in my mind about God that were very hard-earned truths that I did not just write in a pretty journal, but there were snot cries, you know, mm -hmm. those truths that you learn when life knocks you down and you don't think you can get up. And it was that God is good and that he is sovereign and nothing surprises him and that I'm his beloved and that he adores me. And I didn't always believe that. Hmm. I did not always believe that. And those three things were lifelong things that I have become convinced about. And um, those things would carry me. They would carry me as I was walking out with the girls. And then I'm in this extraordinary community that I mean, it's almost embarrassing to tell you a new roof on my house, new landscaping, new computer, uh, new to me fridge. I mean, it was just insane. Meals for nearly a year, really? three times a week. It was just the outpouring. I'd come home and one of the elders of my church was cleaning my tub and I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, the tub. You know, when someone's coming to clean your house, you do the pre-clean. <laughs> no pre-clean, <laughs> Like, I'm putting humble pie in the oven, <laughs> and I'm going to eat the whole thing. I'm going to gain 10 pounds because y'all know my business, you know. Yeah. And it was just so beautiful, though. I was in such need, and I it's changed me because this is what I learned. I learned a lot of things. One thing I really learned is that when you're in need and when you're desperate, you receive the help that you need, and you cry for help, and you receive what God gives you. And you will never be the same. And when you stand up again, you will go further. You will give more deeply. And you will respond more readily to the needs around you because you just know. And so I now counsel that reticent widow who's concerned about, oh, but I just can't ask this. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Take it. You need it. You are hurting. You take it. And you will never be the same, I promise you. You will go more deeply in loving the world and loving people when you honor your need and you stand back up and you are healed and you can intend your world with much more depth and much more intentionality. And um, that's what happened to me. Hmm. Wow. I told you I could talk, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I just basically you can talk. keep oh, talking, my friend. I'm about to pass the offering plate. Keep talking, okay. But and so you kept your, you keep working. Yes, I work for another year, and then I asked God to please allow me to reinvent my life because what I found was that I was just depleted, and I had to come home to two little girls, and I was it, mm -hmm. and it was just so hard. So I I took this concern and I had a group of faithful friends who met with me monthly for a year to pray with me and to talk through things. And, and so, I mean, they helped me decide to get the mini and not the more practical car, which was hilarious. <laughs> I'm very happy for that council. They you were they, something fun. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I just needed something fun, something new and something that wasn't going to break down. Cause I was always, you know, I think I was driving a 13 year old Cadillac DeVille. It looked like I borrowed it from the prom. 
and never gave it back to my parents. I actually put fuzzy dice up just to make it more kitschy. And it broke down. My air conditioning unit broke down the week, John. I mean, it was just like insane, all these things that would break down. Anyway, so I was grateful for some provision to be able to get a, a reliable, fun car. It was fun for me and the girls, and mm-hmm. we drove it for a long, long time. Um, anyway, this group of friends were there to counsel me, to help me make decisions. And so the massive leap of faith would become leaving that job in order to record that body of music that I developed for the school. Mm -hmm. And I did it on my time to keep it my own intellectual property. And, um, you know, this desire of Jonathan's to see me do this, he, um, you know, used some of the life insurance policy because this would be the beginning of a business. And he basically helped me. I mean, his sacrifice Mm. (laughs) helped me to record this music, to put it out there. And um, so... At the end of 2009, um, so nearly two years, about a year and a half later, I um, I left staff. Mm-hmm. Um, little did I know that God would throw in a prince and I would be getting married too. I mean, it was just insane. And I mean, I remember at the time talking to one of my dearest friends and I'm like, I, I, is this just not the craziest scandalous thing she goes well you know how god is i mean he you know had mary become pregnant with jesus at age 13 14 and i'm like all right let me let me just check here you're using the virgin birth as encouragement for my story <laughs> what was the what was the well, it was just the fact that i was getting married the, so soon that god is so happen. wild that god is so yeah. wild that was her thing god's so wild you know, yeah, Mary had a baby at age 13. I'm like, okay, thank you. I feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I know. You're just going to uh, say that out? Yeah. I know. It was very funny. So how how did you guys meet? So he came to check out the preschool mm-hmm. when both of us were still married. And so we, in retrospect, would look back on um, the – isolated times that we would encounter one another. He ended up not enrolling our daughter, (laughs) not my daughter, (laughs) in the school. But he later went through a divorce he didn't see coming. And, um, you know, I'm healing and he's healing. And in the age of Facebook, we became friends on Facebook. And and so that's really, you know, that's where it was. We sort of got to know each other that way when you're accepting all kinds of friend requests and, (laughs) you know. (laughs) <laughs> so we became soulmates and we were I don't I shouldn't say we became soulmates we just sort of are and we both had such hard stories it's been interesting because um I'm a better wife than I was because there's certain things that you just they just don't freaking matter at mm. all I remember being at a friend's house when I was alone you know not in relationship to Peter and her husband came in the door and he was late and her words were, you're late. And it was very cutting mm-hmm. and you could cut the tension with a knife. And I remember thinking, if I ever get to do this again, I'm going to say, you're home, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just the shift because I definitely would have been tempted to say the same thing, irritation, familiarity, you get lazy, you know, you just... And it's it's so sad. So I'm really glad to say that 
our marriage is characterized by a lot of kindness, hmm. a lot of respect, mutual respect. And, um, and it comes from, you know, realizing half the junk that we, you know, get so upset about just doesn't matter at all, hmm. you know. Wow. And so that's been 10, 10 <laughs> years now. It's been 10 years. Yeah. And we've blended our families. So after um, I left my experience at Mustard Seed, really, I mean, to develop the catechism project called Ask Me Who, and that was fun to finish writing all of that, to record all of that. And I maintained some part-time work, but then I came back on staff at Christ Community when someone texted to say, there is a position available, I think, that really would suit you. And, you know, I didn't know how my script would work itself out, so um, it just seemed like the right thing to pursue. I didn't envision I'd be coming back to staff in two years, but I did. And but now, not for the school, for the But not for, for the, the school, so the church side, yeah. And so um, I was coordinator of women's ministry, and now I'm director of discipleship and equipping so I am more, I'm an adult education and Bible studies retreat, so I'm still writing curriculum and I'm still mm. involved in education, but now on a church staff. I didn't. I honestly didn't even know that yeah. you were doing that. Yeah. yeah. So how long have you been doing that role? So I recently shifted within the last year to that role. Prior to that, um, it was a little more broad um, mm -hmm. category, sort of really director of adult ministries, Community life is what we called it. I'm really enjoying reestablishing this lane that we sort of had kind of closed off when our church kind of went through some decline, and now it's, you know, just thriving. And so I'm able to uh, tie some strings to some balloons that didn't have strings, and hmm. yeah, so that's been really enriching. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And are you still playing music? I do, not as much as I want to, but. Um, I'll participate on the worship team. I just, I'll do, I just sang for a friend's memorial service. I just did, um, I think this is year 17, singing Lifeways VBS in Spanish. Really? Yeah, yeah. and it's so fun because I sing it with my daughter. So when she, once she got That's amazing. to the age where she could do that, um, I think this was our fifth or sixth year doing it together, so it was really fun. I, I'm, I'm sure I'll say this like in the introduction to this podcast when I tell people who you are, but I just need to say it to your face. You, I've maybe been impacted by your worship leading more than probably anyone I can think of. Oh my goodness! Like you, and it's been a long time since I've yeah been led by you in that. But but your gifting for that is kind of off the charts. Wow! And so I'm glad that that that's still a part of what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. You know, it's something that I feel is one of my roles in the body of Christ. And there are times where I'm much more upfront with it. And like in our case, when we led worship together mm -hmm. at um, the Young Life International, it's for a very large group of people. Other times it's, you know, women's retreats or conferences. Most recently it's been singing, just singing. I'm not charting. I'm not actually the worship leader, which allows me to still participate. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, sometimes I think, what in the world am I doing? I've just, I've got this big fat family and this big fat job. And I have so many desires to continue to enjoy 
creating music, leading worship, singing. And so I just, you know, I just take it as I can and, Mm -hmm. you know, but I really do deeply appreciate that affirmation a lot. Well, and I'm sure I'm confident that what you're doing at the church is as life-giving. I mean, to the people that you're serving, just, you you know, you come, you come with such wisdom and depth and experience and, and kindness. And I, I think that's probably uh, a real, I'm sure that's a real gift to the people that you serve. Well, thank you. You know, I, um, I had a huge epiphany that taught me great things. And I, I think it's worth saying because it informs everything I've done really since that time. So the end of my 30s, I was on the eve of my 40th birthday. I just went through a real big crisis about whether God loved me or not. And I was definitely still very much that performance-based acceptability person. I had such accomplished parents. And while I was accomplishing as well, I felt successful. I felt accepted. And I'm probably projected a lot, you know, It was hard to see clearly, but I thought I needed to earn their love. And so when I met with failure, when I didn't perform and I was just lost, I really hit the skids. I mean, it was just awful. And I went through a season where I literally despised myself. But the world didn't know that because I still used my gifts and I was still being affirmed through my gifts, but here's what happened is that I encumbered my gifts with a job they were never meant to do. And that was a huge revelation to mm. think that my gifts were supposed to prop me up before the world. That's not what they're for. It's to for the edification of the life of the world, not for mine. Mm. You know, they were deposited for me to go give. And of course I get to enjoy being a carrier, but I they needed to to sort of um validate and compensate, and that's not what gifts are for. So I kind of, for myself, defined perfectionism as excellence encumbered with a job it was never meant to do. And so it wasn't until I became convinced, and this is another podcast, (laughs) (laughs) that I was Christ's beloved. And Hmm. when I became convinced, not only did it disencumber my gifts, but it also gave me freedom It gave me freedom to be good at things and freedom to be bad at things because not any one person is supposed to be good at everything. And so I just have to kind of know what I can offer. Hmm. And if I'm on a team, no, I need this person to round out the stuff that I am just not good at. Yeah. Yeah, Don't hand me the tuition check in the car line because it will go through the wash. (laughs) You know, I know that's not my gift. So, and I don't have shame about that. Now, I have to be a steward of my gifts. And so when I phone in, and I've done this before, I'll never forget this ridiculous mistake I made in leading worship for all of New Hope Academy. And I start, I strum a chord, and my note I sing is in a completely different key. I can't explain it. <laughs> I can't explain it. <laughs> You've all done it a few times. I mean, you know, it was so <laughs> awful. And I just stopped. I'm like, one more time for the old lady. And I went, you know, so no, I didn't make a big deal about it. But later, I had a little business to do. I'm like, God, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't steward my talent by practicing and being prepared. I'm sorry. And so I don't beat myself up for it, but mm-hmm. I do try to take responsibility for when I don't, you know, steward my gifts well. But that freedom of knowing that I'm Christ's beloved. And so here's the thing that I've learned so much is that there is a reason why God saves us. And 
I think up to a certain point, it was always because I'm a sinner. Well, that's true. It's the only way to get to heaven. Well, that's true. But all those things are not the end in and of themselves. They are the means to the greater goal, which is literally to be with God in a sentence. That's what he wants. He wants to be with me. And he can't be with me when the requirements of his holiness prevent me from coming to him in my sin state. And so Christ removes this obstacle, and now I get to be with him. And so it's like salvation is like a marriage license, right? And you are, the church often says, you know, look at my marriage license, look at my marriage license, praise my salvation, which we should praise it. But at some point you put in a pretty frame, you put it in a beautiful album, then you go on and have a marriage. And that's what happened mm. is I went on to have a marriage with God. And so, and that is, it's so rich and textured and it's embodied. And that sounds really weird in the context of marriage, but it isn't just a believing experience or a thinking experience. It is, you know, sand in the toes experience. It's, you know, sometimes when I counsel someone who's been in my office, I'll say, hey, before you get in the car, I just want you to do something really simple. I just want you to notice if the wind brushes against your face. Hmm. And there is something really important to being aware that his revelation is everywhere. And, you know, I can read about the wind against your face or I can stop and I can experience it. And there's a big difference. So all of that recalibrating is has influenced the way that I lead and the way that I teach and the way and when you and I were working together that had already happened for me and um, it's been the best gift second to knowing that I belong to Christ but then knowing why I belong to Christ mm. it's to be with him and sometimes before dinner when my girls were littler and we would have more regular family dinner times I would say, hey, before we say thank you, God, for this food, and before we say I'm sorry for anything, let's just for a moment just be with him. Like it might help you to imagine sitting in his lap or you know, mm. just let's just be with him because that's why he saved you because he just wanted to be with you. And it might feel weird, but we'll get better at this. So we would be silent for one minute and we would just pretend to be with God, not pretend. I mean, we would be with him. Imagine is the word yeah. I'm looking for. And then we'd say thank you for this meal and bless our family. And it was just such an important shift, such an important shift. That's how I led a group of young seventh grade girls, all of them capable of running for the presidency of the United States, except for one <laughs> who was in a major dark goth phase, but everybody else. <laughs> but I would teach them how to... Just be with God, and, and we would light a candle. Sometimes that helps. Mm. And so one of the girls I heard later went out and bought a candle, went in her room and lit it and just sat on her bed and closed her eyes and just imagined being with Jesus. I'm like, yes! Mm. That's why he saved you. He wants you. Yeah. It's so beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you so much for this. Oh, what yeah, a gift. You are so welcome. What a gift. We talked about a lot of things. I figured we might. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. 
Thank you, Diana. That was wonderful. If you guys want to find the catechism project that she talked about a little bit, it's called Ask Me Who, uh, and you can find that at askmewho.com. And uh, it's who, W-H-O-O-O, like owls. Who, get it? Uh, It's great. My kids loved this when they were little kids. If you have little kids or no little kids, and they want to learn more about who they are and who God is, can't recommend it highly enough. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, you can go to andrewosinga.com, everybodypivots.com. We'll be back next week with an unbelievable episode. I cannot wait to share this with you guys. Uh, We'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. And now, go do something awesome.